to Sam Watches Star Trek, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. You're not going to be able to do that after today. Oh, I can yell con all I want. (laughs) Want to bet? This week, we're going to discuss 2013 Star Trek Into Darkness. But first, before we do that, Sam, do you want to tell our audience what we rewatched the other night? Did you hear the air quotes when she said rewatched? So, we decided, if you go all the way back to when we talked about Star Trek The Motion Picture, we said when the 4K remaster came out and it was available on Paramount+, Plus, we would indeed watch it. And intend to watch it, we did. Begin to watch it, we did. Marveled at the beautiful 4K transfer, we did. Realized this is a terrible movie that we don't want to watch again all the way through right now, we... Well, I did. Tessa probably likes it a little bit. I don't know. The point is, we watched the first several minutes. We're like, ooh, ah, pretty. We watched like the first 10 minutes. Well, well... Maybe even 20. Oh, no, we got all the way through the, well, I mean, we watched several hours of it because we watched it all the way through when they get on the Enterprise. So there's that. <laughs> After we got to see Grizzled McCoy in all of his glory, we pieced out. We fast forwarded to some of the more visually appealing scenes, watched some stuff with V'ger at the end, and then called it quits. You know, You know, we had just seen it. You know, a couple months back. I don't know that it merited a whole other viewing. I don't feel bad about it. I don't think you do either. But man, did they do a good job or what? I was going to ask you very specifically about the deep focus of some of the scenes that suddenly are just much crisper. But I was also going to ask you about some of the more Kubrickian sequences with V'ger about halfway through the film. Because even you were just like, oh, like, that's really interesting. You see a lot more reimagined, retouched up special effects in this. Yeah, there's, you know, more than it being a good movie, because I don't know that you can make a good movie out of what this was. I've been very clear about that. But there is a lot more visual detail that's very interesting. Uh, The two things I'll say about that are, one, in 97... When I went to the theater to see uh, the THX-enhanced version of A New Hope, the first time that you see a lot of the visual detail coming into Mos Eisley, and indeed Mos Eisley itself, it's like, this is cool. This is great. Just being able to add that visual detail. If he had stopped there, what we talk about about the special edition of Star Wars, could have been as good as this was. Honestly, having seen this edition, I don't see anybody but the purest of purists saying, I want to watch the old one. For the record, when we talk about A New Hope in December, we will not be watching any of the George Lucas monkeyed with versions because they're bad. Even the good stuff that got added, even the sound remastering, even the visual additions... Don't compensate for the trash fire that he made out of his own movies. So when we watch A New Hope, we're going to watch some of the, um, in the original trilogy period, we're going to watch some of the despecialized grindhouse cuts that are out there. But I just don't see anybody going backward on this. Like this is On the the, motion picture. On Star Trek, the motion picture, this is the way to watch it. If you haven't seen the motion picture or you haven't seen it in a while. Second, we talked about Parallel Mothers uh, a few weeks back to your point about deep focus, which is a very specific technical term. And I won't say that that's what the director was doing or what he wasn't doing. You know, deep focus as a technique, you go to Citizen Kane and you can watch it, which Andy talked about a long, long time ago on Monkey. It's the process of having everything in the frame focused through a traditional film, you know, camera, which is very difficult to do. And I think over the years, it's been referred to as, you know, in a more generic way. But, you know, you can go back and once again, 
to invoke Star Wars, if you look at the prequels, where almost everything is shot against a green screen, and so many things have been subsequent done subsequent to that, where everything's in focus because it's easy to do when you're using computer-generated imaging. That is not what was happening in Star Trek The Motion Picture because they didn't have it. So when you look at this remaster and you're like, everything's in focus, it starts to take almost an uncanny look to it. Which but in is a beautiful wh- way. Right. Not which in is, a like, creepy way. Well, right. But it's like I said, in Parallel Mothers, you'd be like, this is shot on a green screen. And then you watch the actor walk back into the background and interact with something. And you're like, my God, it wasn't. Right. You know, so it's very similar to that in some respects. But, I mean, it's just a beautiful film. Too bad it's not good. The other <laughs> thing, too, and I, you mentioned this a little bit, but the music has also been remastered. And yes. that was almost more interesting it to me than the visuals. So good. Yeah. I mean, it sounded great. You liked the overture, especially. You were like, this is oh, almost calming. Right. There was, there was an overture. Just drifting through space while the different so themes nice. play. Yeah. I felt centered. I felt ready to watch the film. I was able to put the cares of the day away and know that I was going to focus on a very terrible movie. Which we didn't ultimately focus we on. We did not. But instead. Instead, we watched the main attraction for this week. Star Trek Into Darkness. <laughs> Just like 2009 Star Trek, it was directed by J.J. Abrams who was rejoined by Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman, as well as your lost friend and mine, Damon Lindelof. How did you feel? Because it wasn't until you finished this movie and his name was in the writing credits that you realized he was involved. How does it feel to have a lost reunion in Star Trek? Well, I'll tell you what. Whenever I see Damon Lindelof's name on something, I am like, to paraphrase... From one of John Mulaney's epic takes on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. You're on a short leash, counselor. <laughs> you like Lindelof more than you like Abrams, though. I do. If there is any sort of pecking order here, I put Carlton Cuse, who is a gamer, man. He is the guy that comes to your show and makes it happen. He gets it done. He's the let's go, people. Right? Briscoe County Jr. and up, man. Like, if Cuse is attached to a project, it's at least going to happen on time. (laughs) And apparently with Lost, you really needed that. I would put Abrams... uh, Sorry. Lindelof under that. Good ideas. Execution questionable. And then Abrams is on my list now and forever. Right, but he hasn't always been. No. He wasn't at this time. No, and and I'm looking forward to the day where you watch Alias and Felicity because those are, you know, good. (laughs) Well, okay, pretty good. So, and I'm going to continue to watch Lost as well. So we we will get back to Lost at times. Great. Right. And at times, the opposite of whatever that is. So Into Darkness is the 12th Star Trek film. It's obviously a sequel to the 2009 film Star Trek. It was a financial success and received many positive reviews from critics. And I have to mention this. I haven't mentioned the earnings of any of these films so far, because as you know, I don't care a lot about these (laughs) things. But it had gross earnings of over $467 worldwide, making it the highest grossing entry in the Star Trek franchise. This is the movie that made the most money of any Star Trek film, including the next one, Star Trek Beyond. It was nominated for Best Visual Effect at the 86 Academy Awards. I don't know why I just started mentioning things that got nominated at the Oscars, but maybe it had something to do with our Oscars episodes a few weeks ago. I I apologize. I have created a monster. (laughs) Brief summary. After a disastrous mission, Kirk finds himself stripped of command of the Enterprise while Spock is transferred to a different command. Meanwhile, a mysterious figure begins committing terrorist attacks on Earth, one of which kills Christopher Pike. It is up to Kirk and Spock to reunite to untangle a vast conspiracy implicating some of the highest commands in Starfleet and bringing them face-to-face with one of Star Trek's most infamous foes. To put it a slightly different way, to summarize, as happens every Tuesday, something disastrous happens and Kirk loses his command. The following day, again as always, something catastrophic happens that Kirk and crew have to deal with 
so that on Thursday he has his ship back and by Friday all is well. Because I mentioned in the last episode, it's it is a little weird the way that Kirk suddenly gets given the Enterprise straight out of the Academy because he does this heroic action in the first movie. And it seems like Pike at the beginning of this is saying, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe you need more experience before you have your own ship. And that seems to be a big thing with Kirk in this film. This idea of, is he ready for command? Does he have the humility necessary in order to put his crew first, in order to put a limit on the id, right? In order to take right. Spock's advice, in order to listen to the other people in his command. Yeah. I mean, like, nobody thought Han Solo should be given command of the rebel army. Right. Ne- I mean, like, it, that's, it's just, no. Why would you do that? We do well, get Pike saying, like, you're a really good officer. And, I like, he clearly wants yeah. Kirk to succeed, but he says, I don't think you're actually ready. Well, and so, you know, I think this is a really good movie. And you know that I think it culminates. So what happened at the end of the first movie was they wanted to establish the new timeline. So there was no detritus from the first one to foul things up. They wanted to do the the fan and Nimoy service. They kind of painted themselves in a corner at the end of the first film because it is very unbelievable that after what happens in the events of the first movie and the first movie alone, that status quo is happening and we can just go do now. So the second movie, this movie, is an attempt to go, oh yeah, that that's yeah, that does seem stupid. Okay, well, here's this and this, and this happens. And by the end of the movie, now status quo is achieved. And we're like, okay. I mean, if you think about the second movie as origin story part two, it makes a lot of sense. But it doesn't feel repetitive. No, it doesn't. And I know we're going to talk about this, but the idea of bringing Khan back in, which we agree is ultimately unnecessary, if you look at it from the perspective of this is origin story part two, they're burning that storyline so they can't possibly be tempted to use it in the future. And I'm like, well, you know, there's another way to not use something in the future. It's just to not use it, but... This is Abrams and Friends we're talking about, so I, I get it. <laughs> they had to remove the temptation. Right. <laughs> I want to focus in a little bit on Kirk because I do think that this movie is trying to tell us something about Kirk, is trying to explore this character more, and they're giving Chris Pine a lot to do with this particular character in this movie. It's Even not those all fun steely and, blue eyes. It's not all fun and games anymore, right? The mo- first movie was... And his haircut. The first movie was like, let's unleash this force of nature on the galaxy. And the second (laughs) movie is like, oh, maybe this force of nature needs to learn a few things. But I was thinking about this in the first movie and then I noticed it more in the second movie. And I'm not sure if it's Chris Pine who made this interpretation or if it's the writers or Abrams or who it is. But the aggression of Kirk is dialed up in this version. I don't know if they're trying to say specifically that this is an important character quality in this character, or if what they're trying to say is this is a different version of the same character, one that didn't have a dad in command growing up, who didn't learn those things from his father. You know, does that make sense? So there's an old Simpsons video game a couple of generations back. It's, It's a version of Crazy Taxi, but it's the Simpsons. It's hit and run is what it is. And so at the end, they rate your how destructive you were. And it's like the episode of Camp Krusty where it's like, Mr. Black. You know, it's the joke where it's like somebody in there and your driving level was reckless. But in this movie, his driving level was insane. Yes, 100%. That's what I thought of when you were when we were talking about that as watching it. I was like, it's it's like his his rating at the end of the round on Simpsons hit and run changed. Well, what did you think about the beginning sequence where he very clearly violates the prime directive in order to save Spock? Well, he didn't do it on purpose. And his only defense is, well, it worked, didn't it? And do you remember what I said? Yes, but I'm giving you the chance to say it again. Oh, you want me to say it? So this is is a point to bring up. I talked about Grey's Anatomy on Monkey a long, long time ago. And one thing that 
you and I bring up a lot is the gifted child, right? In in context of Grey's Anatomy, because Sandra O's Christina Yang is a gifted child. And no one knows what to do with her for the first few right. seasons. And so, you know, and of course, having had that problem personally, but also having been a teacher for the last 20 years, you learn a few things. And the thing about it is, you, uh, and there's a reason, so in, in, in public school, the language changes, as you know, but kids with learning disabilities and quote-unquote gifted children are put into the same category. And they're put there for a very specific reason. These children need more. And, and you can contrast that with earlier approaches to education where it's just like, let them go, let them go, pass, 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 more, more, more. And you get into issues of uh, behavioral issues. A lot of times gifted children are called out for behavior issues because you haven't addressed what they need developmentally and academically. And so, as we have talked about many times with Christina Yang, what we are being told about Kirk in this in these two movies is that he is a gifted child. And one of the things that's common with many, many gifted children is, if it's right, why are you hassling me? If the goal is to do the thing... I did it. You need to get all the way off my back instead of punishing me. And the problem here is that is exactly what happens at the beginning of this movie. Nobody is taking the time to educate him, to help him. His dad got blowed up. His surrogate dad is being mean to him now. Like, you praised me and now you punished me. What have you done to teach me? Yeah, except for Pike then makes him his first officer. I think the intention was then to teach him. But the whole point is is that the Prime Directive exists to prevent colonialism or to influence a culture unduly. It's an interesting conflict. Because I don't think either side is wrong. No. And there's a lot of background. Like, I just, what? Like, gave you two minutes, two, three minutes worth of background. There's a lot of background to that idea that you could very easily overlook. Because we have to get to whiz-bang more quickly. You know, like, literally, like, 30 seconds later, they all get blowed up real good, right? Right. Like, right after being demoted, he's like, wait, wait a minute. Wait. Why did they go to that building? That's so dumb. Well, let's see. Let me... Oh. Oh, no. They're going to blow up this place! We go straight from being like punished for being gifted to like, hey, why didn't any of you figure this out? You're all dead. Sorry. I have a couple critiques of this movie, which I like you. I liked a lot better on this watch than I had previously. I actually think this is a very good movie, but I do think there are some flaws with it. One of it is the pacing of that first part because I'm like, he's demoted. Now he's back. Like that, that was a little odd for me, but it does set up this really interesting conflict. I wish they'd had more time to explore. Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I feel like we're coming all the way around. Definitely some pendulum swinging backlashing in Hollywood. And I know Andy and Pete Davidson believe wholeheartedly in short movies, but... (laughs) I mean, can you imagine if this film had had the Batman length? Yeah. Or Endgame length? I would have been really interested in it, actually, because no this, other part of this movie did I feel like it was too slow. Yeah, this movie could have used another act, even. Because you recall, we stopped to get our snack. Right. Right after Act 1. And that was 30-ish minutes into the film. Yeah, that's correct. And if we could have stayed there for a little longer, I think it would have been made better. So I respect your your plea for short-ass movies. I guess what I would say more than anything else is we're learning with some of these other films. You know, movies can be whatever length they are. I know. I think that the actual <laughs> argument here is that your movie needs to be exactly long as it needs yes. to be. And, and not a second longer. Or shorter. Or shorter. I also think that the Kirk storyline is interesting because we get, and we're definitely going to talk a lot about Khan, 
but we get a, a reversal here. We get a couple reversals, but the first one that we get is that it is Kirk in this movie who is out for revenge for the death of Pike against Khan instead of Khan being out for revenge against Kirk. So we get this really interesting storyline in which Kirk is being like emotionally blind to everything that's happening around him. Like he is very smart. And like you said, he figures out what's happening in terms of what Khan is going to do next at the beginning of the film. But after that moment, there's a good middle section of the film where he is so fixated on Khan that he cannot see what is happening at Starfleet. He's kind of ignoring slash half listening to what Spock and Scotty are saying about their concerns, their ethical concerns about this mission that they've been sent on. And it's almost like you're right, like he needed to be taught, but instead he has to learn all these things the hard way, right? Through this really traumatic series of events. Oh, I, 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 I haven't seen the third movie, so if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and I'll be happy to be wrong, but it's going to be super great in the third movie where he doesn't deal with that trauma at all because it's not there anymore because nobody has trauma when they have to learn things the hard way like that. Not at all. Not even a little bit. But what did you think about that scene at the end where he is confronted with the imminent death of his ship and he's, before he figures out what he and Khan need to do, he is basically begging Admiral Marcus for the lives of his crew. It's like he suddenly realized that he can't, he can't always brash his way out of it. At some point, he right. does have to accept responsibility for what his actions cause. Right. And I mean, that's very humbling when you do have to do that. I think any of us who have had to, you know, admit a weakness, it's very difficult to do. Um, and this is a character going all the way back to driving a car off the cliff is not interested in taking responsibility for anything. <laughs> Yeah, and I think this is also a movie about how Kirk learned to listen to his crew. Because you've said before, like, you need someone like Kirk who actually does things in command, but you don't want him to be the only person in command. Like, he has to learn how to listen to Spock. He has to learn how to listen to Scotty. No, and and you know, I am very critical of leadership almost, almost universally across the board. There's a peculiar thing that happens to leaders. They forget how to lead the longer they lead. And, you know, that's why it's really important to listen to the people around you. And the only way to continue being a good leader is to be a good listener. I say this as somebody who is like Spock, not a good leader. You should not put me in charge of something. I've said that forever and ever. You know, people think I lie when I say that, but I don't. But that does put... You know, I, I feel like I'm in the position of being able to say, well, you know, that's not. So I did feel very similar to the way that Spock and, and Bones did in this movie. Well, really is, you know, anybody on the crew, even um, Scotty, right? right? How did that make you feel that Scotty resigns? I mean, what? it obviously <laughs> serves a plot point to separate him right. off, but it didn't feel like plot point for the sake of plot point it felt like a very real conflict that they were exploring no there are i definitely feel like bones and scotty are the two characters who no matter the situation will stand up and say no this isn't the right thing i think those are i mean bones is very clearly the ethical one because remember we know that Kirk is all emotion and um, Spock is all logic, right? I think Bones is more interested in ethics. And I think that Scotty is a very strong personality who believes in right and wrong. And to be fair, most of the time he is right and everybody else is wrong. And I respect that. And he cares about the safety of the crew. But he does, but he takes his job seriously. I think that's a really unique combination that I really appreciate is, you know, a, a personality type who takes what, what they do very, very seriously, but also has a very, uh, in some ways, hyperinflated sense of right and wrong, because that makes them difficult to deal with 
which I know Scotty is. Like, it's all fun and games when he's on camera, but can you imagine interacting with that person? Well, you remember... Uh, you can, because you know me. But <laughs> the point is, can you imagine? I mean... That would be terrible day after day. We do see that conversation <laughs> via communicator between Kirk and Scotty, where he's trying to tell Scotty to go check out the coordinates yeah. that Khan gives him. And it is an infuriating conversation <laughs> between the two of them, because Scotty's trying to pretend like he doesn't care but he's actually like taking down the information and it's it's an it I will say though that Kirk except for the scene where he does tell Scotty to resign which I think is a very well done emotional scene where Simon Pegg is doing some good work in that scene but besides that scene Kirk knows how to handle Scotty for the most part like he knows how to communicate with him and what he needs right i mean and so that the that if we're going to keep going with this idea that is proof that Kirk can be a good leader and hopefully will be a good leader because he does understand unconsciously. He understands in that, you know, in those moments what to do. The point is, can he do it consciously? And obviously he makes the wrong decision when allowing Scotty to resign. But other than that, he seems to know how to manage him, especially, of course, later in their relationship. So the other thing that we get from Scotty resigning, of course, is Chekhov in a red shirt, which nobody wants. It just looks wrong. And he sounds so overwhelmed. Get that kid like a deck chair or something. He needs a break. We were actually just watched the episode of ER where Benton tries to run the ER. And that's how I felt about Chekhov. Like he's just doing his best, man. He wasn't trained for this. If you're going to battlefield promote somebody, you should probably only promote people who could actually do the job. He's doing his I best. I know. Well, I know this sounds just like out there, but you shouldn't put people in jobs they don't know how to do. I know. That's that's it's crazy. Ridiculous. I know it's like it's actual insanity. That's it. I sorry. It wasn't a joke. It's insane <laughs> to do that. Stop it. So last episode, you were a little, not like overly critical, but you you did single out Zachary Quinto as doing something different than the rest of the crew. What did you think about him in this film? I think without being juxtaposed with Nimoy in a more plot-oriented way, I guess in this movie it's also plot-oriented, but it's less fundamental. There's only one scene with Nimoy in this movie, and it's Uh, very brief. So without that, he's doing a much better job. We need to ditch the romance. We need to just throw it in in the fire and just, I'm not saying it has to be a thruple, but man, oh man, he does not need to be romantically involved with Uhura. Can we just stop it? I did feel in this film like the chemistry between Bones, Spock, and Kirk was much more apparent in a romantic way, if you want to read it that way or not. They definitely started getting the old man bickering, even though they're not old. <laughs> they, they've, they've got it down in this film. So some highlights that I have. The thing that made you laugh the most at the beginning where McCoy yells, I hate this at Kirk and, and Kirk yells, I know you do. I know, I know you do. The, the p- I said my exact words at that moment were, which one of us is the one that yelled the first thing and which one yells the second thing? And your response was situational dependence. Depends, depends. The whole scene in the shuttle where they're going back up to the Enterprise between the three of them is hilarious because Kirk and Spock are trying to have this like deep conversation about the ethics of what Admiral Marcus has asked them to do while Bones is trying to give Kirk an exam from behind to him. And he's like, get that thing off my face, Bones. But then also Carol Marcus shows up, played by Alice Eve, at one point. And Spock's like, did you ask for another science officer? And he gets so jealous. He's like, I think that I am perfectly capable of fulfilling this duty. Poor guy. Tessa, please stop trying to make thruples happen. I I I thought it was great. Bones even says, don't agree with me, Spock. It makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) Oh, it was good. It was good. I mean, it was pretty good. We also get the classic Bones, damn it, I'm a doctor, not a fill-in-the-blank here. The one he says in this one is, damn it, I'm a doctor, not a torpedo technician. (laughs) And 
I think he says a couple of them before Kirk says enough with the metaphors. <laughs> so he does call him out on it. Well, since I mentioned Carol Marcus, what did you think about future, at least in the OG timeline, future Kirk baby mama, Carol Marcus, in this version played by Alice Eve? Right. So, okay, I think I can do this. Uh, so, again, remembering nothing about the movie from the first time I saw it, which you know is a true thing for me. I was like, oh, look, it's a mole. She's a mole. She's a mole, mole, who moles, mole, moles. Oh, and now she doesn't have any clothes on. Oh, wait, she's not a... Oh, I see. I hope she's in the third one. This is fun. She really feels you like could... she's joining the crew at the end of this film. Yes, but also, finally, you can cut diamonds on that bob, you guys. It's true. Her bob is very sharp. You know, Alice you know, Eve is a great actor. You know who I would I would have her as, and I understand there's a hair color issue here. You know who she should play in the uh, the film version of Mass Effect. You know, my favorite, Miranda. Yeah, yeah, I could see I could see Alice Eve playing Miranda. Actually, that would be a very good choice. So the main storyline here, I think, is very interesting because we're doing two things. Uh huh. We're doing con. Uh, John Harrison. I'm sorry, John Harrison. That was the thing. I knew he was con from the very first uh, moment of this film. John Harrison. Despite the fact that every interview that he was in, he kept saying he was John Harrison. And by the way, Benedict Cumberbatch in an interview recently says he still has not forgiven J.J. Abrams for making him look like an asshole. He was just like, no, that was not okay. I really think there's enough of us that we could have t-shirts. Yeah. Obviously a club with t-shirts. It could be the John Harrison club. It could be the John Harrison Club. <laughs> God, why? <laughs> I did want to mention before I got too far into this, speaking of people having cameos, uh, Mickey from Doctor Who is in the beginning of this. He is the guy that John Harrison gets to blow up the Kelvin archive. Cool. I was like, it's Mickey. Oh, Mickey's dead. Oh, it's very sad. Like I said, there are two things going on, and they're very intertwined, and I like one of them much better than I like the other one. So, first, let's talk about Khan. What do you think of this particular version of the Khan storyline and Benedict Cumberbatch as Khan? You mean John Harrison. I'm sorry. That's it. I'm done. No! Khan! No! Harrison! It doesn't have the same ring. It doesn't. It really doesn't. And that's my point. This is a good story. With a few minor changes, it didn't need to be con. It's actually not about con. It, it's which not. Is, which is what so, I realized so, when I was watching it this time. So just imagine the scene, if you're going to bring Nimoy in, which was absolutely unnecessary, but if you were going to bring Nimoy in, what if, oh, that reminds me of a time where we fought Blah, blah, blah. And instead of him going, oh, we totally fought Khan. Oh, that was kind of funny. Well, but it's also wrong because he said he wouldn't do that. Right. Right? Except yeah. for Khan. It's so important. Well, what if it didn't matter? What if it wasn't Khan? What if it was mm -hmm. something? And he goes, that reminds me of a time when. Could have probably been somebody completely different if you had made the, that single change, which I would have done. I would have made him con-like. I don't think... This is something we've talked about before, right? And did he even have to be human? There's plenty of alien races that could be considered no, super. No, but yeah, exactly. I mean, like, it could be the same backstory. I don't care. Like, what if it was... There's 72 of, of them? them. 73. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It could have... What if in the Kelvin verse, it had been one of the others? That would have been really interesting, like actually. In, like, wouldn't that have been like cons in one of those torpedoes? And Spot could have been like, maybe get rid of that one, though. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like, that that's actually how you could have done it. Yeah, that's actually really smart. I hadn't thought about did that. Did I just write this movie better? What did you think about Benedict Cumberbatch? That would have really worked. Yeah, I think it would have. And he would have played it very well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he plays a good superhuman. I don't know if it's con. <laughs> Yes. Now it's like I think he now, really suffers hey, in comparison to Ricardo Montalban. And you know I don't feel that way about the other right. actors who are and, doing versions of these characters. And here's the thing. You know, Benedict Cumberbatch, at this point, 
is well known for playing somebody with superhuman powers. He plays a gifted surgeon who's also a magician. He plays the world's greatest detective, Victorian British style. In this movie, he manages to dial that down from both characters by like 50%. And when he dials down his Sherlock by 50%, when he dials down his Stephen Strange by 50%, what you're left with is a megalomaniacal person bred to rule the universe. Sound like someone you, you, we know? You can, yeah. laugh, you can laugh here. That was a yeah. big, that was a setup for, yeah. I don't know if that landed or not. Well, but. I will say the one thing I did like about it was the physicality of his performance. We've talked a lot about how the whiz-bang Star Trek allows them to be more physical. There are parts of this movie that verge on horror, right? Mm-hmm. Because he breaks Carol Marcus's leg. He crushes Admiral Marcus's head. Like, there's a lot of physicality to this role that Ricardo Maltabon just didn't have access to. We got hints of it, right, in Wrath of Khan, because we see, like, the tortured crew members who have died, and we see, like, the dissection of, like, the the uniforms of the dead people on on his uniform and all of those things. But we don't actually get to see him be that physically cruel. So I that's the only thing that I really thought that this movie brought to that character. But like you said, it could have been any other character. I also think that Ricardo Montalban is playing this character much more sexy and much more queer than Cumberbatch is. So, you know, if you value those things in this character, the original is best. The other thing, just to compare it very briefly to Doctor Strange, is that it commits the same sin that Doctor Strange did, because while I think they were trying to get away from some of the more Orientalist origins of Khan, because especially in the original episode Space Seed, Khan is depicted in a way that's very, like, fetishizing of, of yeah. Asian Asian culture. And just and you know I like Ricardo Montalban in this role, but he is not... He's not East Asian. (laughs) And the problem was they were trying to get away with that from that with Benedict Cumberbatch. But his name is Khan Noonien Singh. Mm -hmm. This is a character who is supposed to be East Asian. Are you telling me they couldn't find a brown actor to play this? And I compare this to what happened with the ancient one in Doctor Strange, which had a very similar problem of whitewashing. Like the origins of that character is racist. But if you're going to cast that character, why not get an actual... Mm -hmm. Asian person, Tibetan person to play that character. I thought when you, I, I remember you talking about that. I briefly thought when you said you were going to compare it to Doctor Strange, I was like, oh, and this one, Benedict Cumberbatch is being annoyed to death rather than doing the annoying. Yeah, that's true. It is a change. I, I thought we were helping, or I thought he was helping us. I think we're helping him. You did like that line. I did. Yeah. I, I did like that one. Yes. What did you think about the reversal of Spock and Kirk in that death scene? Because, again, asking these two actors to do what is considered a very famous death scene, but in reverse, I think is an interesting challenge for any actor. No notes. Yeah? It was very effective, yes. Was it more effective than the original for you? No. Okay. No. And that's why ultimately this shouldn't have been Khan. It should have been referential of Khan, the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have landed just as well. I think it would have. I mean, yeah. there's a way you can reference a movie without it being Khan, right? <laughs> like, it's the same exact thing. Down to some of the lines are the same. When he's when Kirk yeah. runs into the the thing and Scotty, and Scotty is like, you know, we, we would be dead before we even made the climb. And he punches Scotty out. Like, we're not going to do it. That's all directly from Wrath of Khan. Except for, obviously... Spock Vulcan pinches <laughs> right. uh, Scotty instead. And you pointed out that the actual climbing element was a reference to what did you, what made, what did that make you think of? Oh, I already don't remember which movie that's in five, five. It reminded me of five. You guys, what part of five, the climbing part. Well, I don't know. What do you want from me? Okay. The other thing that I, I mentioned to you, and I'm curious to know your take on it, although I don't know if anybody but someone really familiar with Star Trek would have understood this thread. There's a big thread in this movie about Spock and feeling emotions and Vulcans in general. And all that we could do with this emotion. Oh, God. <laughs> 
If you know anything about Vulcan history, you know that the Vulcans adopted logic as their fundamental precept because they were destroying each other. The idea is that the Vulcans are super strong. They were very savage. I guess that's the word that's used in this movie, although I think that's a very racially loaded word, so I'm not sure they should have used it in this movie. But they were very violent in their history. And the whole point was that they said, we are going to kill ourselves off. We need to make a change socially. And so they adopted logic as a way to curb that. But you get little hints of this that's been shrouded in ritual, like the Ponfar and, you know, these these moments in which Vulcan ferocity can come out. And this movie, more than anything else, I think, really tries to explore that at the end where Spock loses Kirk and then goes after Khan and yeah. Khan especially sends up, try, he tries to rile Spock about halfway through the film by saying like, oh, you're a Vulcan, you wouldn't understand like what you have to do in war and like the, the savagery that, that Admiral Marcus wanted from me that I was bred to do. But we get to see that that's not true because Spock like, he tries to destroy Khan and he's just as strong as Khan is. Right. What did you think about that particular thread and the way that this is framed at the end? Isn't it funny that we also, going back to ER, watched an episode where the same thing happens? Yeah. I mean, I know you're not as plugged into like Vulcan mythology (laughs) or whatever, but I do think it's an interesting way of talking about something that comes up in the series. Right. I mean, it's just... So basically, Vulcan is straight edge culture. Yes. Right. And it's... Which is annoying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> also by the way when you said uh the describing them as savage feels problematic and i thought to myself well i mean this is probably the most appropriate way to use it and well i guess if it's problematic it can't be used anywhere we should just not use that word and i'm like i think i'm okay with that yeah i think that word's been used unless been- unless you're rihanna Oh yeah, she can do what she wants. Um, <laughs> right, I, I I think that's interesting though. But no, and, and again, if they had had a couple more minutes of a runtime, maybe they could have established that a little bit more. Right. But yeah, I mean, like you reminding me of that made that scene a lot more powerful. It is also possibly the only uh, scene that justifies the relationship between him and Uhura because Uhura is the one who stops him. Right. Right. Although yeah. she stops him by telling him that they need Khan to revive Kirk. Right. So it's like both Uhura and Kirk. That's sort what I'm, of, Yeah, that exactly. Him. Right. Which is a lot to say that that relationship has served its purpose if and it ever had one. So in the third movie, maybe they won't be together. I hope. I do have to also say, though, that Spock running after Khan, he looks like a dork. He runs like a dork. He does have a stupid run. Yes. That's true. Yes. That is absolutely true. Why are you running this way? <laughs> I did like all the reversals uh, in, in the thing. Like, all the references to Khan were fine. And you, like you said, you could have done those references without it actually being Khan. I did like that Kirk says to Spock, this is what you would have done, which is great. Because in another universe, Spock did do that, right? He mm-hmm. did do the thing. And so I thought that was good. Spock yells Khan which, you know, Kirk famously does in the original. Yeah, and then Spock at the beginning, actually, when he's saved from the volcano and he's calling Kirk out on it, he says the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, which is, of course, the, the famous line from, from Wrath of Khan. So we get a lot of those types of things. Although I did like that we just, like, we did Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock. <laughs> but they shortcutted it. It was like, oh, Khan's blood is actually the Genesis Project. We're all done here. I'm so glad they did that. Yeah, so the next movie is not going to be The Search for Spock. The Search Hooray! for Kirk. We did it. Okay, so like you said, that didn't have to be Khan, but that is like the Khan storyline. The more interesting storyline to me is actually the Admiral Marcus storyline, which I didn't think about as much, I think, the first time that I watched this. But now, especially having watched six, I think that this is a really interesting uh, idea. They did six too, didn't they? A little bit. They they at least were playing with some of the ideas from Six because this movie almost feels like a Cold War movie, right? The idea... That's why Simon Pegg wrote the third one. They ran out of original things to pilfer. <laughs> They'd already done all of the movies. Yeah. They were like, it's this or Wales. 
This movie feels like a Cold War movie because Admiral Marcus does that thing where he says, war is inevitable. We're going to war with the Klingons. There's going to be other other aliens out there. And he even says that threaten our way of life. Yeah. And so his whole justification for waking up Khan and using him in this way to make these intense ships and torpedoes and next generation technology is this idea of preparing for war with the Klingons. But as both Spock and Kirk point out, even doing this, even doing these types of missions aren't just unethical. They actually might cause the war. Like you want a war to happen, which is why you're preparing this way. If you really didn't want a war to happen, you wouldn't be preparing for it this way. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels like by, by doing that, you are, engaging in a relationship with another group of people you know so like the 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 preparation for violence is is mutual if you will and and when you do that kind of thing you 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 make it certain or assured again if you will that they will in fact cause destruction you're very funny yeah <laughs> there's also I mean, <laughs> Which is really funny because, like, I mean, this has been this has been true for for decades. You know, that's what the Cold War was. I mean, that's why Kubrick made fun of it the way that he did. Was like it, your attitude. You're like you're like. Well, we're just defending ourselves. Well, by defending yourself, it's really just a catch twenty two. Well, and it becomes an excuse for anything, right? Like, because yes. he's willing to destroy the Enterprise to cover up right his secret military operation. Yeah. And which is which is the opposite of what Starfleet's there. It's it's very anti-utopian. Like right. like just in case, just just in case, just in case what? Just in case you see somebody walking down the street and you don't like them, so you're gonna blow them up. I mean, they didn't do anything to you, but they might have. But they could have. But they could have. And the and the Klingons are especially and, and the, the weapons object- are just wasting away. I mean, we got to use them for something. <laughs> might as well blow these people back to the Stone Age. They know what they did. Yeah, and the Klingons are a very specific focus of his because because yeah. their way of life, as he would put it, is so antithetical to the Federation way of life. But what's interesting is one Scotty points out in his argument: this feels like a military operation, but we're explorers, aren't we? Like he, Scotty, in yep. Scotty's mind, they are not, Starfleet is not a military unit initiative. Starfleet is not following the prompt. The distinction of what Starfleet is, is at stake right. in this movie. Because at the end, it ends with them going on their five-year mission, which is what the show is, right? It's supposed to be adventures from their five-year mission. Right. But that mission isn't a military one. It's an explorative one. Yeah. And remember, that comes up at the beginning of the movie. Like, if you can't do this right, why are we going to let you have five years by yourself without parental control? Right. (laughs) What did you think about the Klingons in this movie? There's not a lot of stuff with them. It's fine. The one thing that I will say that Uhura I thought about... Uhura translated again. Yeah, there's a reference to Uhura translating. And they, I almost love when they do references because it's subtle enough that if you didn't know about it, it wouldn't bother you watching the movie. But it's enough that like a real fan would pick up on it. A real fan? I mean, a well-educated fan. A well-educated fan? Oh, my God. <laughs> but I did like... She appeals to the Klingon sense of honor. Somebody who has spent 30 seasons worth of television of their lives watching could get. Well, for an example, you wouldn't get this because you haven't watched TNG yet, but she appeals to the Klingon sense of honor, which isn't really a thing until TNG. It's not a dominant part of their culture in the way that they were conceived of. By the time we get to TNG, honor is a huge part of Klingon culture. Right. And so, I mean, like, I didn't need this at all. Could have been cut. But... The purpose that it serves there is clearly to be those two references, which I got one, so I feel pretty good about that, and that's really cool about the other one. We get some references, including a Beastie Boys reference, which feels like a reference to literally the last movie, which I appreciated. We also get uh, the reference to Captain Sulu, right? Because he is captain of the Enterprise briefly, but then at the end... When Kirk comes back in and he gets out of the chair, he says, you look good in it. And he says, I don't know, maybe one day Captain Sulu has a good ring to it. Yep. So there, there's all of that kind of thing. I also appreciated, again, San Francisco is the like main city that we see a lot of in this. 
But I like that Benedict Cumberbatch's con is literally like, well, my family is dead, so I'm just going to ram my ship into San Francisco. <laughs> I can't tell if he was just trying to destroy Starfleet or... I don't know. Like, it's hard to say. What was his... What's the point here? What's the subtext? You know, the, the, the Kelvin place was in London, right? So, yes. So uh, you, it makes you kind of wonder if it was on um, <clears throat> Baker Street. Ahem. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't is feel it, like it's two twenty one B. Yeah, isn't it's two twenty one B because that doesn't actually exist. It's not a real address. Well, it doesn't anymore. He blew it up. <laughs> There's a couple other visual gags. I know you really liked the scene where the Enterprise falls through the clouds and then comes back up again. Yeah, which is a cool. Well, and it, it's a good callback to the ocean too. The, yeah, the beginning the, of the movie, the ocean, which it seems like a callback to Voyage Home. But it also seems like a good callback to salt in the ship. <laughs> it seems like also a good callback to Wrath of Khan, where they come up through the nebula clouds. Yeah, we do get two brief, very very brief references to both Christine Chapel and Harry Mud in this. Sulu refers to the Mud incident at one point in the film, and Carol Marcus tells Kirk that Christine Chapel is one of her friends. I still miss Majel Barrett. Hashtag justice for Barrett. Just a couple of last things. Uh, Chris Pines, Kirk says the monologue at the end yep. to kind of introduce us to like, they're finally going, they're doing the thing. They're We're going setting up on the this mission. franchise for, for many, many movies to come. Womp womp. Right. But, but it's cool to hear him say it and to kind of have that connection to the oh, original series. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially cause then we're supposed to be, they're on their mission. They're, they're they doing the it. thing. Hooray. The music that plays over the credits is the original theme. It right. is the, the, without maybe quite so much um, singing. Yeah. <laughs> no, quite so much operatics. Yeah. All right. I think that's it. Next up on Sam Watches Star Trek, we will be talking about 2016's Star Trek Beyond. However, since neither one of us have ever seen this movie, we decided to get a little help from our friends over at The Pod Wraiths, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. So stay tuned for Star Trek experts and superfans, Elise and Matt, to take over this podcast next week. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. And you can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Until next time, live long and prosper.